1: in.
2: Come on in. We have something special today. I'm with the chef Samin Nosrat. She wrote one of the most acclaimed cookbooks of the past 50 years, and we're in her kitchen, a place she rarely lets outsiders invade. So this is a real treat for the listeners. This is where Samin creates, tastes, and perfects her famous recipes. And today, Samin shares a recipe that is especially important to her. Chicken soup.
1: <laughs> so,
2: And you walked in here with are those lemons?
1: Oh yeah, we have a lemon tree just outside. Okay, inside. those are post-nuclear lemons. Yeah, I've that never lemon seen tree- a lemon that big.
2: <laughs> the soup just hit some magical <laughs> space where the aroma just filled up the kitchen. My senses are on overload. There we
1: go.
2: Mmm. Oh my goodness, the lemon. Mmm.
1: That is delicious. Oh good. My mom would be like, "Need more lemon. <laughs> Not sour enough."
2: No, it's perfect. Welcome to Your Mama's Kitchen, the podcast where we explore how the food and culinary traditions of our youth shape who we become as adults. I'm Michelle Norris. We're going to learn more about the origins of that delicious soup and why it's so important to Samin in this episode. But first, a word about her background. It was her breakout cookbook that first made Samin a household name. That book, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, opened up the eyes of home cooks everywhere on how to elevate flavor by mastering those four elements. A good cookbook is almost like reading a good memoir. You learn something about the author. And hidden inside Samin Nosrat's pages, a very personal journey that started in her mama's kitchen. That lemony chicken soup you heard us tasting at the top of this episode, that tart, savory, and then tart, once again, soup, was inspired not just by her mother's Iranian home cooking, but also by a long hidden memory. A very special trip that Samin took with her mother back to her native Iran when she was just a kid. It wasn't until recently that Samin realized that trip changed her life and Samin's golden chicken soup and those giant lemons we squeezed in it are both a result of that epiphany and a love note to her spiritual home. Now, Samin, you will hear, is a big personality with a waterfall of a laugh, and her excitement is almost contagious. She's a fast talker, really fast talker, but also a really calming presence. After we sampled that delicious soup in Samin's kitchen, we shuffled over to a cozier spot in her Oakland home, the place where she cooks herself much simpler meals throughout the day. And when I saw that space, I couldn't believe it. For a woman with so much culinary prowess.
1: Yeah, this kitchen is tiny. <laughs> it's even smaller than the little one It is
2: of, tiny. This, this room place room. looked almost like a galley kitchen on a boat. Lots of wood, lots of hanging pots and pans and utensils. But like most of our kitchens, she even has an appliance that needs fixing.
1: stove that's currently broken. <laughs> I assume someone's going to get on that yeah, and yeah, fix that
2: on, for you. Right way, we settled out. into her big oversized couch, pot-bellied fireplace in the corner, shoes off, socks on, and a steady rain tapping at the window. With her dog Fava Bean cozied up at my feet, I learned more about Samin's story. Tell us about your mama's
1: kitchen. Um, Growing up, my mom's kitchen was absolutely the center of our home. It was always every day filled with so many good smells. (laughs) My family's from Iran and my mom is an extraordinary Persian cook, although she cooks all sorts of other stuff too. And I didn't actually know until oh much, much later, actually just a few years ago, that she was mostly self-taught once she came to the States because she wasn't really cooking when she was still in Iran. You know, there were people who did that for the family. And so I have two brothers. We had sort of our kitchen table in the middle of the kitchen, and we had our spots, our assigned seats that were, you know, with our placemats and our things that we like to use. And so every morning we'd come out. And have Persian breakfast, which is like flatbread and cheese and tea and jams. And it was just the warm place. You know, every day my mom asked us, she had a, she's all about fairness. And so she was all about rotating. Like now that I write for people, I understand like oh, a huge part of the tiresome part of cooking is deciding what to make. And so my mom put that on us. I I wasn't that picky, but one of my brothers is really picky eater. And so she's like, if you're going to be picky, you guys have to choose. And then like, if we chose, she would make that thing. So there were sort of these like rotating days of my brothers and I choosing. And I grew up in San Diego, and it was a strange combination of full-on immigrant family mixed with only shopping at the hippie natural grocery food store. So like there was a lot of like (laughs) carob and psyllium husks. The hippie natural food store? This is before (laughs) Whole Foods? Yeah, yeah. Oh, well before that. Yeah. So we had to like cross town to go to the co-op or cross town to go because- Everything was in bins. Yeah. And my mom, you know, I mean, I immediately understood it instinctively as soon as I started working as a cook and understood the importance of like sourcing your ingredients. But, you know, my grandparents- had a citrus orchard in the north of Iran on the Caspian Sea. And so the thing like all the immigrants everywhere always are like after that taste of home. And like the highest compliment a thing could get was this tastes like Iran. She was always after the taste of the produce that tasted the most like the stuff from home. And that was usually the organic stuff or the like fresh from the farmer's market stuff. And it wasn't even necessarily some sort of like ideological choice that she was making. It was much more about taste.
2: She was looking for home.
1: Yeah, yeah. We spent a lot of our time as kids in the car, driving all over Southern California to all of these stores. To source food? Yeah, to like Middle Eastern stores or there were a lot of Mexican groceries. My dad would actually drive to Mexico to get citrus fruit that you can't find in the States, like sweet limes and sour oranges and things like that that we had back home that you can't just like readily find at the grocery store here so that we could always have those tastes in our kitchen. And I remember my parents eating persimmons I just remember as a kid thinking persimmons were like the grossest thing ever because I had a bite of them. Have a particular and taste. they were I must have eaten an, a super unripe Hachia persimmon, which is the kind that has to be really soft and almost like pudding texture when it's ripe. I don't know if Iranians, all Iranians eat them when they're not ripe, or just my family gave me a piece before it was ripe. But if you eat it before it's ripe, it's very tannic and dries out your mouth. So as a kid, I was like, ugh, persimmons are disgusting. You know, and now I understand there's two different kinds. And so, but there was just a lot of exposure to tastes and smells and ingredients. That were absolutely not the things I encountered at school.
2: So tell me about that. What was it? What, first of all, what did your lunchbox look like? Uh, I don't How old are you?
1: Seeing? I'm 43. So I definitely had like a metal lunchbox. I had a Flying Nun lunchbox. Oh, and you probably that's don't amazing. even remember. I the do flying know what nun. the Flying Nun is, but I didn't watch that show. That was before by with Time. Sally Field. Yeah, I totally. Yes, d- yeah. Yes, but I went to um, a little Catholic school with a Flying Nun yeah, lunchbox. Yeah, that's pretty rad. I probably had Care Bears or something like that.
2: And they always get rusty. And yeah, they like,
1: would get rusty. Funky on the inside. Totally. <laughs> and, One thing we have that my mom would make that makes a good leftover lunch is these little sort of almost like little meatloaf patties called kotlet. So I would take those, and then people would be like, "Ooh, what's that? It looks like poop." You know, I remember being in kindergarten and coming home and being like, "Oh, the kids said my lunch looks like poop." But then also I was like, "Well, it tastes good." Like I I also I didn't I wasn't that upset, you know, for that long because I was like, "My lunch is good," so. It was fine, but yeah, I definitely didn't have the standard like PBJ. Eventually, my mom did make us PBJs, but they were because we shopped at the hippie store. It was like on the driest whole grain hard <laughs> <Our laughs> bread with the, like <laughs> peanut butter. They like, stir the oil in and like <laughs> the peanut butter yeah. That
2: separates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this was
1: like you know clinging to the roof of your mouth the whole day. But the jam was probably jam. The jam was actually jam. Yeah, totally. <laughs> And so, well, but my brothers and I talk about this a lot. Like, definitely, her love language was cooking for us and taking care of us through food. And I don't think that was ever a life that she foresaw for herself. You know, necessarily someone was cooking
2: for her. Yeah, because there were people cooking young. for her,
1: and there were a lot of unexpected sort of turns in her life that led her to where we ended up. And so, I don't think she expected to end up sort of spending her days in the kitchen but she did and and that was absolutely like an incredible gift and i know it's something a lot of people don't have is somebody at home cooking for them every day of their whole childhood so i definitely appreciate that
2: Knowing who Samin is today, it might come as a surprise that despite being gifted with so much home-cooked Persian food while she grew up, being a chef was not even on her mind when she left for college. She had big plans to head in a different direction until she tasted one meal that was so delicious that it blew her mind and changed the rest of her life.
1: I've wanted to be a writer since, well, first I was like, Ronnie, all Iranian kids are like, you got to be a doctor, a lawyer, engineer. So most of my childhood, I was like, I'm going to be a doctor, lawyer. Oh, a doctor, Whoa! <laughs> <Yeah. No. laughs> I don't even, even though I, I don't That's know. a lot like, of school. Truly, I know. I just was like, I don't know what. And then I was and like, a lot of, but like, I, didn't like, I didn't actually. Initials after Yeah, your totally. Name. But then I had this amazing English teacher in 11th grade. And I was like, I don't actually even want to do any of those things. I want to be a writer. Like I love writing, which was a huge disappointment to my family. <laughs> <laughs> and so I came to school in Berkeley, and I was an English major, and I I wanted to write. And I'm the oldest kid in an immigrant family, and like my dad was not super present in my academic life, and my mom was busy sort of raising three kids. And so I definitely had to figure out everything on my own, like how to take the PSAT and the SAT and the AP tests and all that stuff and get myself to college. And I was sort of watching all my friends do that, and I did. I was always like the best student and I got myself to school and I got a scholarship and the whole thing. But then I was like in college as an English major and I was like, then what do you do? You know what I mean? Like, I guess I'm just going to go to more school. I guess I'll just keep going and become a professor. But then my my main sort of professor mentor was like, oh no, I won't write. <laughs> he, he wouldn't write me a recommendation for a PhD. He was like, no, you love writing too much. You care about it too deeply academia will squash your soul. So he was like, this is not for you. Don't get a PhD. So I was like, truly didn't know what to do. I thought maybe I would get a MFA in poetry. So I applied to that and I got accepted. But by then I had had this sort of life-changing meal. And in my family, we we did not eat in fancy restaurants. That was not a place where we spent money. We like ate round table pizza on Wednesdays. And when we went out for a celebration, it was to a Persian restaurant. Usually, we would drive to Orange County and have like cello kebab. I was not eating in any fancy white tablecloth places. Like, I didn't even know that that existed, what that was. So, there's a restaurant in Berkeley called Chez Panisse, which was founded in 1971 by Alice Waters. And so, when I came to Berkeley, my freshman orientation, at some point, somebody was like, oh, and there's this fancy restaurant in town it's a place your parents should take you called Chez Panisse. And I was like, not my parents. So I was like, white people's parents. <laughs> and so it kind of like went in one year and went out the other. And then my sophomore year, I had this boyfriend and we really bonded over eating, like like our love of food. And he had always wanted to go to Chez Panisse. So we saved our money for eight months. We saved $200 so we could go there. So we went there and it was this very special meal, very amazing. What it was really, special about it? You know, the building itself is an old home. And so you really feel that still, I think, when you go in. It's
2: actually really small. Yeah. It's very cozy. Yeah,
1: and it's so cozy. And like, I mean, to me, as a 19-year-old, it felt incredibly fancy. But I think it also just felt cozy. There's like copper light fixtures, so all the light is really warm. And it's a fixed menu, so it's kind of like you're eating at someone's house and you're just getting what they're serving. And... We had a friend who was a busser there. So they had told them that we had saved our money for so long. They thought it was really charming. So they were like so nice to us. And I think they were like doting on us a little bit extra. And also, I think it was very funny that these two young people, we were out of place in this room. What, do you, you remember what you ate? I think it was like frise au lardon, which is like a classic sort of French bistro salad. And it maybe had chanterelle mushrooms in it. So it's a frisee, is like a white curly endive. And it had little pieces of bacon or pancetta and chanterelle mushrooms. And then I remember being really nervous because the second course was halibut, which is just like a simple flaky white fish. I think it was in a broth, but I was so sheltered. I had really only ever had salmon, trout, and shrimp. I really ate very little seafood. So I was like, kind of nervous. I was like, am I going to like this? So I had to eat that. And I, I totally liked the halibut. The main course was, I think, a quail. It was a little bird. And then the dessert was chocolate souffle. And I had never had souffle before. So when the server brought it, she was like, oh, have you ever had souffle before? And I said, no. She said, would you like me to show you how to eat it? And I was like, okay. So she said, you poke a hole in it with your spoon and you pour this sauce in so that every bite has sauce. And it was like a raspberry sauce. So I did that and I took a bite and she said, how is it? And I was like, oh, it's really good. But you know what would make it even better? She was like, what? I was like, "Oh, a glass of cold milk." Cuz I was like, <laughs> I was like it's this warm chocolatey thing. You know what I mean? Like warm brownie cold milk. And she was just like, "What?" Like she was like, "You want milk?" <laughs> and I was like, "Yeah." And I I mean, I was so innocent. I didn't know so she brought me milk and then she brought us each like a little sip of dessert wine to show us the refined accompaniment. But like most people right, like, would yeah. want with their souffle. Like, <laughs> and late, only later did I realize like this was like totally uncouth. But it was just this sort of very warm, loving experience. And I think for me, what stayed with me much more than any of the, the food was nice, but like it wasn't by any means like the most delicious food I'd ever had. I just never had felt like, oh, everything. Is so thought through and taken care of. If we ran out of butter, new butter appeared. If we ran out of water, new water. Appeared. Like every detail was so thoughtful and loving. And I always worked through college, so I, we had friends who were busters there. So I applied to be a busser there, and so I wrote a letter and I was like, "Dear Ms. Waters, like I had a dinner, I'm the this one who, magical I'm dinner." As for milk, well, I didn't actually say that in the thing. And then I brought my resume, and they're like, "Oh, you have to bring that to the floor manager." So then they like brought me over to the floor manager when she opened the door. It was the soufflé lady, and so she was like, "Oh, you." And I was like, "Oh, you." She hired me. I started the next day, and so I bust tables for a year, but pretty immediately, I was so curious about the kitchen, and that sort of coincided with my senior year of college. When I'm like, "Wait a minute, I'm an English major. Like, what am I going to do?" Like, all my friends were graduating, becoming consultants. I didn't even know what that. I still couldn't tell you what a consultant does, and like, I would go to a job fair, and I was like, "I don't even have a clothes for man Taylor. Like, I didn't have any. You know." I just, in my heart, I was like, I'll die if I have to sit in a cubicle. And then I would go bust tables and walk through this kitchen and it smelled so good. And it, all the food we got to taste was so delicious. These people just were so passionate about what they did. And I was like, what if I did this? It wasn't that I had some lifelong dream to be a cook. It was just that I had no <laughs> idea what else to do. And this was this kind of amazing, inspiring, beautiful thing right before me.
2: So you went to Berkeley thinking that you were going to be for a time, a lawyer-doctor, and then a writer. But now you are an author, a teacher, and you're a chef. When and how did you make that leap?
1: I asked a lot of questions. I volunteered for a long time. I asked what it would take for me to get an internship. And they were like, gave me a list of like 30 books. And they're like, go read all these books and cook from them. You know, I think they also probably were like, she'll never do this. And but then it I did like it. sounds like you were obsessive though. Because <laughs> yeah,
2: I am. I, I read somewhere and let me get this right. Did you, did you miss your college graduation because you took a shift?
1: Uh, it was, yeah, yeah.
2: Wait, yeah. T- what what's the story? You, uh, and I just, how did
1: your parents deal with I mean, oh, I have my, so many questions. Oh, about yeah. This. How I do mean, you not
2: miss? How do you not go to your college graduation? I just wasn't.
1: I've never been like a super school spirit person. And, you know, like I think I've kind of laid out how my family's a little bit disconnected. And so it wasn't going to be ever a thing where like my whole family came to town and took me out to dinner and celebrated this achievement anyway to me, I've just felt expected that I had to graduate. I didn't feel like it was something that I deserved acclaim for. And then, so then I went to work. And then later that summer, at the end of that summer was the 40th birthday of Chez Panisse, And it was this really beautiful party on the campus. We were cooking like 20 lambs and a huge pot of bouillabaisse. And it was right in front of the English building. In my mind, I was like, this is my graduation. You know, I just was like, this is where I belong. So it was- That's beautiful. It was okay. It wasn't a sad thing for me at all. It's funny. I have this like two parts of me. One of them is I feel like I've just been invisible my whole life and like not ever getting credit for the things that I do. But then the minute I become a visible person, I'm like, stop looking at me, you know? So like I wouldn't have, I think I would have been deeply uncomfortable with everybody staring at me from my family. Like that gives me, it's not what I would have wanted. Like I just would prefer people to see me for who I am.
2: You're listening to the Audible original, Your Mama's Kitchen. Like what you're hearing?
0: The next episode is available now exclusively from Audible. Visit audible.com/slash kitchen and hit the follow button for the latest episodes each week. You can listen to new episodes
2: on Audible two weeks before you can hear them anywhere else. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. I love to be able to cook in a kitchen and have a good meal with the people I care about all around me. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen at a big island and we were able to all get in and do our thing together and sit down in the adjoining dining room and have a long, loud meal and then clean up afterwards and continue the conversation. I loved being able to do that and Airbnb allowed that to happen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. Hosting your home on Airbnb is a great way to make some extra money. It's very practical as a side hustle. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to try to lift up your game? I know, I just got a new tennis racket. It's one of those newfangled things that's supposed to put a little bit of extra sauce on the ball, and it makes me want to spend a little bit of extra time on the court to perfect my backhand or work on my volleys. Here's the thing. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities, you never knew existed it's advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go you'll never go without available dynamic sky panoramic glass roof available front row massaging seats available 33 inch all-terrain tires available multi-terrain select with all of these options you can travel in style and comfort in the city or off-road Immediately after graduation, Samin's career took off. She volunteered in the kitchen at Chez Panisse, the famous restaurant run by Alice Waters, the chef and author who's credited with creating America's farm-to-table movement. That led to an internship and a job. Then the renowned Tuscan chef and writer Benedetta Vitali showed up for a book signing. Samin begged the chef to let her apprentice with her in Florence, and it must have been a pretty good speech because Benedetta agreed. After two years in Italy, Samin returned to California and went back to Chez to work for her mentor. She cooked and cooked. She began incorporating writing into her practice and became the Samin we know today. She's an American cook, strongly influenced by French and Italian culinary traditions. But recently, a long-forgotten memory of a special trip Samin took with her mother resurfaced in her thoughts and gave Samin a new understanding of
1: what some of her most important influences might have been all along. So I've always in my heart been like, wow, wow. My aesthetic education really came from Chez Panisse. And it really came from my time in Italy, which was at this very formative age, like, you know, learning how to love flowers and gardens and textiles and just surround myself with artists and makers. That was, I felt like these values that I learned in my early 20s. And recently, I had this memory of when I was 14, I went to Iran. With my mom, we went and visited one of her best friends and who's since passed away. And she lived in a neighborhood in Tehran. So this neighborhood's kind of like in the foothills of the mountains. And it's a very old and beautiful neighborhood. And the homes there are really old. And we went there to visit her friend who was like one of her, it's like one of her two best friends. And she had these two daughters. I was 14. The daughters were maybe six and eight. And we got there and I'd only ever heard of these people. You know, I'd never met that. And we get there and we get out of the car and these girls start just running me around and showing me around the property. And there's just trees everywhere. There's all these fruit trees everywhere and apricot trees and almond trees. And it was like probably May, June, July. And so there are a snack, like a treasured snack in Iran is to eat almonds before they're fully ripe. You pluck them and they're green almonds so that what becomes the shell is still kind of like a green fuzzy skin and you can bite into it. And it's this crunchy thing that has like, it's just the whole thing's crunchy and you sprinkle salt. So they showed me like how to pluck those from the tree and eat them. They're like, oh, these are our apricot trees. These are this. And I was like, that was my probably my first time in an orchard. I mean, I grew up in San Diego, so I was a lot in citrus orchards, but that was my first time in a stone fruit orchard. And they had this pool, this beautiful pool that was like handmade hand dug and they could they would drain it every day and refill it with mountain water fresh mountain water from because it's the alert they were at the foothills of the mountain and it was the coldest like stream water but like so refreshing it was this huge dark beautiful pool and the house was this style of house kind of like a it was like a two-story home that was built in four sides around a central atrium and a lot of the outward facing walls, there would just be sort of like indoor-outdoor spaces with just like old Persian carpets and there's just ceramics everywhere. And, you know, and also like their rooms were filled with in posters. You know what I mean? They're still like girls, like, you know. And I remember I think we we spent the night there. And I remember they were showing me after running around all day on the farm, they're like, oh like we go to the bathtub and we wash our feet and I'm like you wash your feet they're like you don't wash your feet you know <laughs> and there was just it was such a sweet thing but their home was just so filled with all these beautiful textures and colors and handmade things and and their mom was an artist and there was this little boy who lived nearby and he came over and his name was Dustan and in Farsi the word I'd never heard anyone with that name because that word just means story and I remember thinking about that for a long time and years later realizing like oh they were hippies That's a hippie name, to name your kid a word, you know? They were artists, they were creative people. And I've had no access to that my whole life because I've only, I've been so confined to just a very limited sort of portion of our people and a very limited picture of who we are and what we have in the world. And also being pelted, by what everyone else is pelted by, that Iranians are terrorists and whatever, and trying to defend myself from that, you know? And so here I am thinking, everything that's good about me comes from Alice Waters and Italy and Europe and white people. But actually, like, when I was 14, this magical thing happened for me. And these people who are so special that it's, like, stayed with me for 30 years. And what else could there have been? What else, who else is there like that? So then I like maniacally started trying to find that neighborhood on Google Maps. I have one Persian friend who's an artist who lives here who I called and I was like describing this home to her. And she was like, oh, that's where my grandparents lived. And she said, you know, Samin, when I met you 10 years ago, you were always like, I don't trust Iranians. I don't like being near them they're so hard on me and i always was really sad about that because there's so much beauty in our culture and she's like now i have lived here long enough to understand <laughs> your skepticism <laughs> but i always wished you could see you know and i'm like now i get it so i have a lot of sadness about the thing that i never got to see and also probably that's been wiped away from our country you know i don't know i don't know i'm still figuring out what my relationship to iran is via cooking and and what my way there will be through that. But I do think like there is something in me, for lack of a better phrase, this is so cheesy, is like I feel very like because I feel so lost, I'm always looking for that wherever I go. Like I feel very much like citizen of the world. You know, when you're like my mama's kitchen, I'm like, well, what about Gary's mom's kitchen? What about so-and-so's mom's kitchen? Like, I could tell you about all these people's, you know, I could tell you about my Korean friend's mom's kitchen or my, you know, my Indian mom's friend's kitchen. Because I'm always just like, tell me about your life. Tell me about your life. Tell me about your life. Because I've had so little access to like my own past.
2: Did that memory come back to you recently? This summer, yeah. yeah. Memories visit us sometimes when we need them.
1: Yeah.
2: And clearly this was something that I don't want to say it filled a hole, but
1: Yeah, it was really it was really moving. It was really moving. Yeah.
2: Remember that chicken soup I got to savor at the beginning of this episode? Let's get back to that. I mean, do you think your mother knew that there was something that would be missing in your life because they had fled their country and was food a way that she tried to give that back to you?
1: Absolutely. I think food was the main way she tried to give it back to us. And um, and it worked. <laughs> it really worked. I would say it's my like main way that I feel familiar with my culture, it's like the main way that I feel connection to my culture. Certainly my palate (laughs) is very, very Iranian. Iranians have a very, very acidic palate. Say more about that. Iranians don't really love sweet things, although I love sweet things, but they just want everything more sour, like more sour, more lemon, more lemon, squeeze a lemon, squeeze a lime, squeeze a lime, more vinegar, put a pickle on it, put yogurt on it. And I have an incredibly acidic palate. Like, I always want more lemon. Like, that's just, I grew up, my mom would sit in a lemon tree and snack on lemons as a kid. Iranians- I, Like my face puckers yeah. up <laughs> like when I hear you say that. Iranian, um, a snack that we have is called lavoshak, which is a, you know, lavash bread is mm-hmm. like the thin bread. So lavoshak is like, is kind of named for that. It's fruit leather because it's like, looks like lavosh bread. The most traditional one is made with really sour plums. It's like has a, almost no sugar, no sugar in it. And so it's just like the most sour. It's kind of like a treat to get that thing where your cheeks are so... Oh, that you in know, the, where in the cheeks, back where like, your ah! cheeks meet the back of
2: your throat. <laughs> yeah, and you're, yeah. you're
1: and like, you can't really swallow. Ow. They're like You don't know
2: if you want it to go down into your
1: throat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so people like they're, like, they're like, I just want the more sour treats, you know, sour cherries. We were like screw regular cherries. I want sour cherries. So
2: it's it's amazing to hear you talk about this because of course, many of us know you through your work on Netflix, but also we were many, in many cases, myself included, first introduced to you through your cookbook, mm-hmm. Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. So you were basically helping people understand-
1: Acid, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so, I mean, and that's definitely a big part of my, pal- Like I would say the acidity And, like, my relationship to acidity is for sure my Iranian-ness, like, is is 100%. Like, that was not something I had to be taught by cooks.
2: So we want to gift our listeners Mm -hmm. with a recipe. Okay. And particularly when we talk to someone like you. So when you think about your mama's kitchen and the through line from her world to yours—
1: Mm-hmm. Is there a recipe yeah, that you would want us to for think sure? About I've been thinking, sharing with our listeners. Absolutely, I definitely do. And I, I, I actually, when I got this question, I was like, "What perfect timing?" Because I actually have some that I can heat up for you. Last January, February, I started making chicken soup a lot, and this is one of those things where I had in my head that because I had learned sort of in the French Italian style a way of cooking, right? that like you have to make your very rich stock and that's the base for your chicken soup and all of this stuff. And then anytime I would try to make say like a matzo ball soup and I did it that way, it never tasted right. It always tasted kind of too cloying and I couldn't figure out why. So then I went down this like matzo ball soup rabbit hole sometime in the early like pandemic, I think. And I started reading a lot of like Jewish mom blogs, you know, and like like just some matzo ball soup experts. I realized like, oh, wait a minute. Like they don't start with like a rich chicken stock. They start with a chicken and water in a pot. And they bear they only cook it for like 90 minutes. And it's a much lighter, cleaner tasting broth. So I started making a lot, a lot of like sort of chicken in a pot kind of soups, which is a much easier way to make soup, honestly, than. Spend a whole day making stock and then make your stew. So then I was like, well, if I were going to make this, what would it be? And so then I, was, I started putting other things in the pot. <laughs> and somehow, I don't know how I got there, but <laughs> it was just this thing where I started just putting things in the pot. And I was like, it was also gray, rainy. It was kind of a day like this, like it was cold and rainy. And so I put some ginger and some turmeric and a whole bunch of saffron and cardamom. And I like halved a lemon and put a lemon in there. And then I was started eating it. And I was like, is this a weird, like nouveau goop recipe? Or like a you know, just putting whenever I put turmeric in something, I'm like, Am I just being like a white lady putting turmeric in things or is there a reason for it to be here? And then I and then I was like, wait a minute. My mom always made like I actually hated chicken soup when I was little because my mom put so much lemon in it back to the acidic mouth she would make this kind of barley and chicken soup and then just squeeze so much lemon in it probably to give us the vitamin C to kill whatever was sick. But I was like, this is painful to eat. I don't want to eat it, you know? (laughs) And there was always saffron and turmeric in there. And so there was a thing where I was like, wait a minute, this actually in a weird way, I've like circled back to my childhood, like through this like strange journey. And my mom certainly would never spend an entire day making a French stock. Like my mom would put chicken in water and make chicken, she calls it like... um. Broth, basically, you know, she would just make a broth, and that would be the base of her soup. So there was this way where I was like, "This is my version of my mom's chicken soup." Yeah, so that's what I have. <laughs> I like a that golden sounds chicken delicious. soup. delicious. Yeah.
2: You put as much lemon as your mom did. I
1: put, and then when I sit down, I squeeze more lemon into it. And then I have some cardamom ghee. I like to sizzle and put that cardamom in there. Cardamom ghee. Yeah, it's so good. And then if I have rice, I don't have rice right now, but it's nice with a little rice. Or I, I'm working on like a like a crazy spiced matzo ball you can put a matzo ball in there with all the spices that's good too oh how delicious yeah. Samin I have loved talking to you thank you so much
2: I could I could spend all day here oh, with your fireplace oh please you're invited <laughs> and
1: fava bean just <laughs> yeah. chilled out right here at oh, her feet yeah. Beanie's like Beanie could sleep all day Beanie's just like don't ever make me get up <laughs> it's a good life yeah she has a good life
2: and this has been a great conversation thank you so much I would love talking to you me too Sometimes it takes years for us to cherish the things in our lives that are most sacred. Sometimes those things have been inside us all along. Samin's path to finding that sacred part of her center, her soul, was circuitous. And listening to her unlock that journey was a privilege. And the byproduct of that journey, that delicious, tart, savory soup that we tasted with her is something you can bring to life in your own home. Check out my Instagram page to find her special recipe so you can try some of it in your own kitchen. And I suggest some extra lemon, of course. My dad used to have this saying. He'd say that really good food, the stuff that made him think about his mama's kitchen back in Alabama, tasted like a letter from home. As a kid, I used to think that that saying was kind of weird. As a teenager, I'd roll my eyes because he said it all the time. As an adult who would give almost anything to have another meal with him, I totally get it. Sometimes food does feel like a letter from home. Special delivery, food for the soul. Thanks so much for joining me today on Your Mama's Kitchen. I'm Michelle Norris. Come back next week. When you open the cabinet, (laughs) it's like a wall of aroma. Just
1: oh, there's so many spices, all the spices. Yeah, it's very well organized. I have a good assistant. (laughs) (laughs) Stop
2: me. I I appreciate your honesty in there. This has been a Higher Ground and Audible Original produced by Higher Ground Studios, senior producer Natalie Rin, producer Sonia Tan, and associate producer Angel Carreras. Sound design and engineering from Andrew Epen and Roy Baum. Higher Ground Audio's editorial assistants are Jenna Levin and Camilla Thurdecoos. Executive producers for Higher Ground are Nick White, Mukta Mohan, Dan Fearman, and me, Michelle Norris. Executive producers for Audible are Nick D'Angelo and Ann Hepperman. The show's closing song is 504 by The Soul Rebels. Editorial and web support from Melissa Baer and Say What Media. Our talent booker is Angela Peluso. And special thanks this week to Threshold Studios. Chief content officer for Audible is Rachel Giazza. And that's it. Goodbye, everybody. Make sure and come back to see what we're serving up next week.
0: Copyright 2023 by Higher Ground Audio, LLC. Sound recording copyright 2023 by Higher Ground Audio, LLC. Higher
2: Ground. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to try to lift up your game? I know, I just got a new tennis racket. It's one of those newfangled things that's supposed to put a little bit of extra sauce on the ball. And it makes me want to spend a little bit of extra time on the court to perfect my backhand or work on my volleys. Here's the thing. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Available dynamic sky panoramic glass roof. Available front row massaging seats. Available 33 inch all terrain tires. Available multi terrain select. With all of these options, you can travel in style and comfort in the city or off-road. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach!